Imagine Hillary Clinton's private email server. That pesky little piece of equipment in the basement. The poor email server. Flashpoint in a major election. Discussed on television every day. The focus of the FBI, no less. It didn't know it was causing any trouble. It was just there to serve the email. Bits go in, bits go out. But imagine, one day, the email server has had enough. It unplugs itself from the basement and decides to live its own adventure. Beyond the shadows of its famous installers, it decides to enjoy itself for once. It goes to restaurants. It sees the Empire State Building. It goes to strip clubs. It takes in the Bronx Zoo. It goes to another strip club. It sees the Statue of Liberty. It smokes crack. It goes back to the strip club. It smokes crack in the VIP area of the strip club. The press catches on and starts to report on the antics of the server. Not only did it possibly compromise national security, now it's addicted to drugs and got kicked out of the Navy for doing drugs and sat on the board of a Ukrainian national gas company and abandoned his family so he could sleep with his brother's widow and then left her and impregnated a stripper before denying that he was the father of that baby until a court-ordered DNA test proved he was indeed the father. But most troublingly, this sentient, deviant email server is just a ham-fisted metaphor I'm using for Hunter Biden, who actually did all the things I just mentioned. Well, clarification, I don't know if he's ever been to the Bronx Zoo. Here's my point. Take whatever you believe Hillary Clinton's emails did to the 2016 election. A serious issue that became a fixation point of the press and was poorly handled by the candidate and multiply that times a hundred if Joe Biden is the nominee. Why? Because comparatively, very few people understand the difference between secure email and insecure email. But the tawdry laundry list of Hunter's achievements? Well... We all know about those. We know about them because our family's gone through them. So have many of our friends. The average voter is not going to know anyone in their life with a security clearance. But they probably know somebody who let their personal demons get the best of them. Or had a controversial relationship. Here's Donald Trump last night at a rally in Toledo making sure that Biden knows the first thing he's going to mention in any conversation during the election will be Hunter. But I'll tell you, I sort of hope it's Joe because he will hear where's Hunter every single debate nine times a debate. A judge this week in Arkansas ruled that Hunter will have no custody over a child he fathered with an exotic dancer he met in a D.C. strip club. And that was this week. 
Now, the question I'm sure all of the Biden heads are screaming into their AirPods right now. What does it matter? What does it matter in a race between Biden and Trump? It's not like Trump doesn't have a tawdry past. Well, here's why it matters. First, Trump is going to make this an issue. Where's Hunter will be the new but her emails. And if you try to turn the tables and talk about his kids, that's a losing position too because they love being on television and would love being a bigger part of this campaign if it means highlighting Hunter. Well, really, highlighting Hunter would be a bonus to them. They just really like to be in front of the camera. I guess they're like their dad in that respect. Second, the impeachment push has legitimized Hunter as a campaign issue. Now everyone knows about Burisma and Ukraine. The Democrats have said that the issues surrounding this are impeachable, which cement the underlying facts. Trump can now easily always get to Hunter by way of defending himself through one of the most consequential moments of his first term, impeachment. So, if you're Biden, what do you do about it? Well, here's what you don't do. You don't cry civility. You don't beg the media to stop talking about Hunter. You don't pretend like it doesn't exist. You have to deal with this head on. And if you don't, it will slowly eat you alive. And here is my recommendation. Send Hunter to rehab. If he is not currently addicted to drugs, then just call it a Lifetime Achievement Award. Keep him there until Thanksgiving. Anytime Hunter is brought up, you point out that you are picking on a drug addict who is currently seeking help. All of his past misdeeds? Drugs. The solution? Rehab. Oh, and... Pray the stripper that birthed this child doesn't talk. Or that Hunter doesn't screw up with his current wife, who he married six days after meeting her and is now also pregnant with his child. If those things happened during the campaign, things would get very, very, very bad. It is at the largesse of everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com that PX3 begins now. Hello and welcome everybody to the PX3 program. My name is Justin Robert Young. Joining you on January 10th, in our election year 2020, we are only days away from the Iowa caucus. The primary season is upon us, and we finally have, it seems, a break in the stalemate of the impeachment articles. We have the latest on that. Looks like we have a resolution as to whether or not our debate will happen on Tuesday. Today is the day that the candidates have to qualify for that debate by we'll have all the news there as well as the beginning of something that i have been waiting very very carefully for the first signs 
that behind the scenes, some of the 2020 Democrats are a little annoyed by how long this impeachment situation has stretched on for. All that and an interview, our first candidate interview. Her name is Annie. She is running for Senate in Texas. And not only does she, uh, uh, she's the underdog in a primary challenge against another well-funded Democrat, but then she looks to go on and unseat John Cornyn. We talk all about running for office and uh, bootstrapping a campaign, as well as whether or not she believes that a gun-controlled Democrat can win in the Lone Star State. But first... today. Uh, We have a a campaign undertaker sighting, and this one hurts. This one hurts bad, folks. Marianne Williamson has announced that she is officially no longer running for president. Now, she didn't have much of a shot in most polls since maybe July. I don't think she even registered a single point. However, she was the spice. Every election, you wind up getting a kook or two that runs, and maybe they've got some good points, and maybe they don't. And sometimes they're Lincoln Chafee, and they just lick their lips really weird. But this year, it was Mary Ann Williamson, the self-help author and New Age spiritualist who gave us some of the best quotes. Some of the best quotes of all the debates. They came out of the mouth of Marianne Williamson. Don't remember? Here is her during the Miami debate, imagining a world where she would call the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who, by the way, had just suffered a mass shooting And in the wake of that mass shooting, the leader of that country said it was her goal to make New Zealand the safest and best place to raise a child. Well, Marianne Williamson took that as a challenge and decided to hypothetically respond to the Prime Minister of New Zealand on stage during a debate. My first call is to Prime Minister of New Zealand who said that her goal is to make New Zealand the place where it's the best place in the world for a child to grow up. And I will tell her girlfriend you are so on, because the United States of America is going to be the best place in the world for a child to grow up. Or how about this little nugget also from that first Miami debate? This was her closing statement and how she believed she could beat Donald Trump. ...of the American people, and he has harnessed fear for political purposes. So, Mr. President, if you're listening, I want you to hear me, please. You have harnessed fear for political purposes, and only love can cast that out. So I, sir, I have a feeling you know what you're doing. I'm going to harness love for political purposes. I will meet you on that field, and, sir, love will win. 
Spoiler alert. It didn't. Marianne Williamson, RIP to a quixotic campaign that certainly gave us quite a bit to think about. Politics! All right, folks. Of course, takepoliticsseriously.com. That's where you support this show. Go there. $3 level, you get two bonus podcasts, one on Monday, one on Thursday. I tell you that every single week. And, and apparently you guys are listening. Because we have a goal, a goal of seventeen seventy six on the Patreon. That's where Take Politics Seriously takes you. The stated mission of that goal, seventeen seventy six, is to put me on the road more. Send me to New Hampshire. Send me to South Carolina. I'm already doing Iowa. I'm already doing Nevada. And I'm not gonna lie to you, folks. Based on the trajectory of the Patreon, I did not expect us to hit it. And we're still a bit off, right? We're about like 200 bucks away from that. But we are gaining at a fairly ridiculous pace. So let me just put this out there now. I will honor... Whenever we hit that goal, I will will figure out more places that, that I'm going to go out there and cover, right? Because you need the money to buy the things. However, <laughs> if this is something that you are interested in, and obviously this is the season to be on the team, this is the season to be a, a, a $10 tier person if you really want uh, to have your name on episodes that people are going to listen to a lot. If you really want to support, uh, time to be a $3 listener so you get the bonus stuff. But man, it would help me if, <laughs> if we knew that we were going to get there so I could buy these tickets because they are expensive and I would like to make sure that the money spreads as far as possible. I guess all I'm saying is, number one, thank you. You are all insane for supporting me like this. But also... You know, if you want it, come and get it. But you better hurry, because it's going fast, like the song says. One more little reminder, free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. That is where you get five stories a day, five days a week, absolutely free. Oh, yeah. And one more thing. Marianne Williamson is out, which means, in my opinion, the richest prize in our political swag game is now up for grabs this is some of the most ridiculous politics merch i have ever seen in my entire life the marianne williamson iowa state fair pin it barely has her logo on it it is just a pencil sketch a beautiful pencil sketch almost as if it were from the take on me video the aha take on me video of marion williamson it's ridiculous and someone's gonna get it in fact we got a bunch of stuff to give away we have the pin we have a marion williamson sign and i didn't realize we had a julian castro sign that's been sitting around so on this episode, go to the Patreon, 
and go ahead and type in the comment section, gong. You don't have to be a, a Patreon to do it. You do have to have a keyboard and a computer. Just type G-O-N-G at random. Next week, I will select and send this merch to you for free. Politics! So we first got word yesterday from Mitch McConnell that he expected the Senate trial of Donald Trump and the articles of impeachment being sent along by the House to begin next week. Nancy Pelosi pushed back on that a bit, but we found out that that is indeed the case. As Nancy Pelosi has said, that she will transmit the articles of impeachment next week. She will discuss the finer points of that process during a meeting of House Democrats on Tuesday. Now, we'll get into why that is pivotal in a second. But first, let's get into the fact that apparently Nancy Pelosi had the idea to withhold the articles of impeachment because she saw John Dean on CNN mention that that might be a thing she could do. That's a real sentence I just said. A man on the TV said, you should withhold the articles of impeachment, and lo, she has. Uh, initially, again, I thought this was literally, I thought it was a smart idea to protect the Christmas break so everybody could scatter across the country and eat their pheasant with their families. These pheasant lovers, oh my God, they can't stop eating pheasant, and they couldn't continue this impeachment process that was an urgent element of our national security. So I was like, all right, I guess you can just hide the break behind partisan rancor. Both sides are going to yell at each other, but what the hell else is new? And then by the time you come back, you know, first day you come back, you transmit the articles, you get things going. But no, apparently this was just because John Dean said on CNN that this would be a cool idea. And she's like, oh, okay. Well, that seems like a nice idea. Basically, Nancy Pelosi held up the articles of impeachment for the same reason that you fall for Instagram ads. You just saw a thing and you're like, oh, that sounds cool. Sure, I guess I'll try it. But here's the reason why I thought she was going to get this thing started ASAP after the break. There was always going to be a break, right? There was always going to be a Christmas break. The senators and the representatives, like, they ain't working through their vacation. So I thought when they got back, Nancy Pelosi would get this thing back on track. Here's why. Because there are, are elements at play here beyond what is happening in D.C., specifically the fact that there are multiple senators running for president and we are currently on the clock for the most pivotal four weeks of the primary season. This is the last time that you're going to be able to campaign and set a message beyond the realities of what primary voters or caucus goers will have to say. You are campaigning in the very provincial Iowa where face-to-face -face contact 
is rewarded. How did Ted Cruz win Iowa last time, despite being behind in the polls? Remember, the famed Ann Seltzer of the Des Moines Register, who has uh, about as as close to a, a pulse on that state as any pollster has to any region, she was wrong four years ago. She picked Donald Trump to win. Ted Cruz won. Why? Because Ted Cruz went to every county in Iowa. Same with Rick Santorum. Now, obviously, on the Republican side, there is an evangelical element that is overrepresented in Iowa. But I very much believe that each and every one of those candidates are going to want to be on the trail. So every moment that Nancy Pelosi knocks back the schedule of events, however long it's going to go with the trial in the Senate, that is time that they could be campaigning. And moreover, it's time that they could be debating because next Tuesday we have a debate. And so it meant something when Nancy Pelosi was like, hey, uh, we're going to transmit these articles after we have a meeting on Tuesday. So that likely means that the debate will indeed happen as scheduled on Tuesday. And who's going to be part of that debate? Well, by a last-minute miracle, thanks to over $100,000 in ad spending between digital and television, Tom Steyer will join the stage. In fact, that means that only Andrew Yang will be missing from the last debate. He is the only victim of the uh, upping of debate thresholds. He's off the stage. Steyer's on. Why? Well, because he is in double digits now in South Carolina and Nevada, two states where he has dumped a ton of money. Is Steyer actually a player there? I don't know. He might have some traction in the moderate lane, specifically in states that might want to overlook Mr. Buttigieg. But let's get back to this impeachment thing for a second. Because I have long had a suspicion based on a few things that all of these 2020 Democrats are very annoyed by this impeachment thing. Now, sure, they believe in it. Sure, they would, they're, they're, they're down to be part of an impeach and remove effort. But their political calculus, because they're smart and they're professional politicians, says that this isn't going to end in him being removed. This is essentially a grandstanding event where both sides can say that they did something. And it's not really going to get them anywhere. So they want it done ASAP. And I've been waiting, waiting for that strain of annoyance to start leaking out. So it came, it came initially from Senate Democrats. Dianne Feinstein started complaining about how long this was taking. Joe Manchin started complaining about how long this was taking. And now, a report from Real Clear Politics. Quote an anonymous DNC official. Politics! 
People are a little frustrated from the political side. I've heard some candidates grumble about it privately. Just because the longer this impeachment thing goes on, the less traction they're going to get. I don't think they'll cancel the debate outright, but I do think they'll reschedule. Now, this report came out before Pelosi made an argument. But the DNC official uh, says that it's clear that the last thing on Pelosi's mind was the need for the party's electoral politics. Which tells you all you need to know. Here's something I will guarantee. All right, you got the old Justin Robert Gerbs guarantee on this one. One of the senators will blame impeachment for why they're not president. They will. This will happen. Now, it might not be the main reason, but they will list among the reasons why they are not the nominee and therefore the president the fact that this impeachment thing happened. We will see blowback from the candidates on this. And it might happen with all of them. All but whoever gets the nomination. And if none of the senators, not Bernie, not Warren, not Booker, not Klobuchar, if, if, if none of them get it, they might all blame the impeachment. But one of them will. That is a Justin Robert Gerbs guarantee. Politics! My guest today is Annie Garcia. She is running to unseat John Cornyn as one of Texas's senators in Washington, D.C. But she's got to make it through a Democratic primary first. You can get more information about her campaign at runannierun.com or you can follow her Run Annie Run 2, number two, on Twitter. Welcome to the show, Annie. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here, and I'm really thankful that you are giving me the opportunity to, to talk with you. You know, we don't really do a lot of uh, candidate interviews, mostly because I, I tend to find that folks who are either in office or running for office have kind of the, uh, you can sort of predict their answers a little bit more, but I, I really loved... Uh, then we're, then we're going to have some fun here. Good, yes. So I really, but I, <laughs> I, I loved uh, the, the, the opportunity to talk to you because I feel like you are in a position where you can answer some really core questions I have about the decision to run for office. So I will start here. Why? Okay. <laughs> Why on earth would you want to run for office specifically when... Uh, uh, there is so much, I mean, you are, you're, you're a mom, you have, uh, uh, uh plenty of stuff that you could be doing, uh, uh, and, and here you are running for public office. It, it always seems like such a puzzling decision from the human perspective beyond the politics. I a hundred percent agree with you. It's, uh, you, you don't even, you're not even scratching the surface here. I have, uh, two small businesses that I, I run myself. I have three kids ages three to six years old. Uh, and I have a nonprofit organization that is actually having our annual uh, fundraiser on February 8th. So this is, yeah, this is not something that um, is a great time uh, to do it. And it's not something I'm particularly inclined to do. In fact, it was a very, very slow walk uh, to decide to do this. But um, ultimately, it came down to three, three key points for me. One is that I am just so... Uh, completely fed up with um, with the, the lack of a moral bottom on the Republican side 
and lack of a backbone, in all honesty, on the, on the Democratic side. Um, I am scared to death about what the world is going to look like for my kids, my aforementioned children, when they are at the point in their lives uh, when they decide whether they have children or when they're entering the, the job market. Um, I, I sincerely believe that the world that we see it as we see it today, the way that it looks to us today is not going to be the same world that they're going to be seeing in 30 years. And that scares the hell out of me. Um, and then finally, you know, being a Texas Democrat, <laughs> I'm really tired of losing. Um, it's been 30 years almost since um, our party has won a statewide race. I know that John Cornyn can be beaten. Um, I know that this race is incredibly important, not just because it would bring us another win in the Senate and could flip the Senate, but because it would have an effect on the presidential race with our electoral college votes. And in addition, locally, um, it could get us the, um, the House back, the state House back. Um, but I didn't see anybody, frankly, that I thought could win it. Um, and I believe that it's going to take somebody who is cut from a different cloth, um, who's operating from a completely different playbook, and who is capable of inspiring people again in the goodness of government. So despite everything that's going on in my life, despite all of the hats that I wear, despite the fact that I really like my life, I mean, <laughs> it's, take, it's taken a long time to get to this point where, you know, my kids are out of diapers and we get to travel and, you know, I, I love my job. I mean, I'm a recovered attorney. Um, I worked in banking and finance law for 10 years and I'm finally, I finally feel like, you know, I'm, I'm happy, but I'm just, I just am so scared. So yeah, it wasn't an easy decision and it's not something that I'm naturally suited for in all honesty, but I, I felt compelled. You mentioned that it was a slow walk. If you are just a mother of three running these businesses in a nonprofit, who is slow walking you? Who who comes to you? If, if we can break down, like, what what is the first time that either you decide this is something that I got to seek out more information on, or somebody comes to you and says, Annie, you got to run? Well, you know the the I love the storyline that everybody uses about oh, so and so asked me to run. You know the I don't know how close closely you're following this race, but uh, the the presumed anointed well not presumed anymore she has been anointed front runner mj hagar has gotten yeah. the dscc uh, endorsement uh, you know despite the fact that she was voting in the republican primary in 2016 they've determined that she's the future of texas democrats um it's um you know it's a <laughs> it's a situation where i feel like um i i just yeah, I didn't know how I was going to, how I was going to balance it all. But I just, I had to, you know, I had to talk to my husband for a long time. And then we finally just got to the point. And I created a video first. I have a really good friend who is in television and movies. I said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. This is actually how MJ got her um, candidacy. She had, she's run once before and lost. Um, but that's how she got her candidacy rolling. I thought, well, I'll do a video, right? I'll do a video and it'll go viral. It didn't go viral. Um, <laughs> but I got enough interest in it <laughs> that I thought, well, you know, there's enough interest. And then, and then it turned out it's, um, $5,000 to pay the filing fee. 
Um, we live off of our, both of our salaries. We, you know, with, we're not rich by any stretch of the imagination, but we're lucky enough that we can make adjustments to our budget and come up with a $5,000 to pay the filing fee. And at that point, it was just kind of like, you know, I'll just do it in baby steps. And then, I don't know, something just kind of happened. Now I'm, you know, sleeping four hours a night and working constantly. And um, I'm, I'm trying to make, uh, I'm trying to really, I'm trying to really change how politics is I don't even want to say played honestly because it's not a game it's I you know the thing the thing that just gets me is you know for all the things that I worry about there are literally people dying because of the decisions that are being made in Washington and I I just I can't I, I can't I can't give my kids this world I can't I can't be okay with that so you decide this is a, a, a thing to do. Uh, how closely uh, have you been connected to uh, you know, democratic politics in, in Texas? And uh, what is your state of play for this, you know, purpling state? So um, the first campaign I ever worked on was Ann Richards' gubernatorial run. Um, and my, um, and then throughout the years, I mean, I've never voted anything but Democrat. <laughs> um, I worked on, uh, Bill Bradley's presidential campaign, which actually as an advanced person, it was incredible experience. I'm now actually, you know, advancing my own events. I go in early, I touch the microphones, I put out my <laughs> push cards. Um, so that was an incredible experience. I, um, I, when I was working as an attorney, I took some time off to go to New Mexico, um, for Obama. Um, and then, you know, my mother was actually the mayor of our small town in Georgetown. So I had involvement in her campaign as well. So I started the young Democrats club in high school. I, this is just, you know, this is who I've always been. Um, and, um, what was the other question? I'm sorry. What is your, uh, state of play here in, in Texas as obviously there was a close call, with uh, Beto and Ted Cruz, which made national headlines. Uh, what is your what is your perspective on where Texas is uh, in terms of, uh, of becoming a more liberal state? Well, you know, in all honesty, I think we're already there. Um, I think we've been there a while. But uh, truth be told, um, you know, our our state Democratic Party is in complete disarray. Um, in order to run for office, which you would think would be a pretty easy thing to do in terms of just the logistics of it. You know, there's a lot that goes behind it. I was told there's no there. I absolutely can't even file unless I have half a million dollars built up. Um, and so it, those kinds of considerations aside, it should be logistically, especially for someone like me who uh, studied and uh, worked in law for, you know, 15 plus years, it should be a pretty simple thing to figure out how do I, you know, go from just being me wanting to run and then actually filing the paperwork. And it ultimately required having to drive to Austin, where I still managed to have the wrong paperwork. I mean, they are not, our Democratic Party is not encouraging people to, um, to run. And then I, in fact, I got as a candidate, you get a lot of questionnaires uh, and opportunities to seek out endorsements. And I got uh, something from an organization that I wasn't familiar with. Um, I think it was responsible uh, marijuana policy of Texas. And so I called them to ask them about, you know, their questionnaire and who it goes out to. And I was told that it goes out to 600,000 people in Texas that yeah. are all like voting age. I was blown away, blown away 
And so I look at their website to see, you know, their, the organizations they work with. And like 10 of them are Republican organizations. And I asked her, where are the Democratic organizations? I don't see a single Democratic organization on here. We have young Republicans of Brazoria County. We have all these Republican clubs, you know, Republican veterans of America. Where are the Democrats? And she said, we don't have any. We don't have any organizations we can work with. Uh, but, and and, like, and, and we, so, so this is this is a marijuana advocacy group that the only political participation that they've had is by, I would presume, young libertarian-leaning Republican clubs in Texas? If you're choosing between the two, I didn't look at, um, you know, there are other organizations out there, normal and other organizations. Sure, sure, sure. Not, but but still, right, but still, but, that, that theoretically yeah. should be a natural home base for the Democratic Party, the Democratic candidate, right? Thank you. Thank you. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, I mean, I was just I was blown away. But I think it's a really good it's, I think it's, it speaks <laughs> it speaks volumes about what the hell is going on in my state. How is it? I mean, you Beto came close, very close to beating Ted Cruz. Imagine if he had had a functioning Democratic Party apparatus. I mean, this state is big and he went to, you know, all 256 counties all on his own. He built the structure. And then sadly, what happens when he's gone? I mean, all of this stuff as a candidate, I'm having to invent everything on my own. I mean, I don't have I don't have a lot of help. I don't know. It's. Imagine if that structure was there to encourage people like me to run and then to support people like him, but we don't have it. And it's a, I honestly feel like um, that Texas is there. If you look at our demographics, um, it's there, but it's still just astounding to me how, how wrong uh, races are being run here in all honesty. So you think that, that part of it is just, the, the fact that there's not an apparatus for Democratic candidates to get their name out, that, that there's just not that cohesion from a party level. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's not uh, the organization isn't there. It's not and it's not um, the the organization isn't there. But also, I think there's something else going on where you look at our look at the candidates running right now. And for this for this seat and the Democratic primary, there are 12 of us. Four of us have um, uh, Hispanic surnames. Um, at least three of us speak Spanish uh, fluently. Um, and it's in the Texas demographics, you know, it's almost 50%, if not already there, Latino. This seat, this very seat that I'm running for in 1996 was won in the Democratic primary by a guy, uh, Victor Morales, who... Um, who beat out three Texas or three Democratic um, Democratic Party approved candidates uh, with fifteen thousand dollars in a pickup truck? Yeah, he got no support from the party, and you know you look at that in 1996, and you look at today, you have a really exciting um, group of people running, I would say, and yet the what happens? The National Democratic Party goes and um, puts all of their money and resources behind the person who is doing nothing to out to reach out to the our Latino communities who's doing nothing as far as I can see to do anything to promote inclusivity it's like they're looking backwards not forwards I got a I got a flyer uh somehow I got an MJ Hagar's um mailer and I've gotten four of these things now and uh on the on the envelope is 
I will fight for uh, Texas, not Mitch McConnell. Yeah. And at first, you, at first, let you get it right. Like she's doing polling, and polling says, "Don't say John Cornyn, say Mitch McConnell." Yeah. Right. There's something. There's something going on there. Fine. But peel the onion just a little bit. Mitch McConnell is up for re-election this year. There's a Democrat running against him. So she's envisioning a future where that Democratic candidate loses. She somehow gets into the Senate, and yet we still don't flip the Senate. Because she's saying that she's going to work for us, not for, for, for the leader, presumptive leader of the Senate. Yeah, that, mean, that, that, that does seem about as basic a message as you could possibly levy. Right. Like that is that is like I will work for you, the people that elected me to a statewide office and not the leader of the opposing party. <laughs> and not the leader that's still like in the majority. Yeah. Yeah. Because like if we're in the majority, who gives a who's a, you know what? She doesn't need to tell us that she's not working for him. She's envisioning a world where we still don't take the Senate. And it's so self-defeatist. And it's this this is exactly what it just has makes me so angry. You know, here we are where she has gobs of money. What was the logic in putting the thumb on the scale at this point? You know, like our Texas is Texas could lead on so many issues. We have I live in Houston, one of the most diverse cities in the country, if not the most diverse city. It is amazing. I mean, this is to me, this is what makes America a, a exceptional is our diversity because we have people that come here who have different perspectives, different skill sets. Um, and, and that's where innovation comes from. And, and so Texas is, I mean, Texas could lead on, on clean, uh, clean energy, you know, coming from oil and gas and making the transition to uh, sustainable energy sources. We could lead on immigration. Um, we could lead on healthcare reform because God knows we're starting at the bottom, but, it's just like, no, 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 let's just let's just give people just a little bit, you know, just give them a little bit to to sway them to vote for a, a Democrat in name, but without any expectation that things actually change. And and that's like this is like. This is why I can't this is why I can't just, you know, stay in my bubble, live my nice life, because like stuff like this, just it, I can't let it go. So, uh, uh, Beto, obviously, who became a fundraising dynamo, we'll, we'll start with that. I have two Beto questions, but uh, here's the first. Uh, there is nationally a tremendous fixation on by Democratic voters and uh, uh, people who pay attention to politics of, of flipping Texas blue. It seems to be kind of like a, a Cubs win the World Series kind of uh, narrative thing that, that is very, very exciting to folks that are outside of the Lone Star State. As an insurgent candidate, how familiar are you with that? And, and how much are you depending on folks that are outside of Texas funding somebody that uh, they might be more interested in getting to the Senate like yourself over a more establishment MJ Hager? I mean, that would be great. Um, I honestly, um, I, so going, stepping, taking a step back for a second um, in my background, I have a nonprofit organization that I built from the ground up myself. And so in doing that, I had to uh, get really creative on, on, um, 
on, on doing things on a very limited budget. And the, all of those skills are coming up now because I am, I'm just, I'm trying to um, create the most um, interest and noise with the a very limited amount of money. So I'm not, uh, I don't, I've made, I actually just printed out my, I have to write thank you cards for all of the donations I've gotten and it doesn't break $8,000 so far. So, you know, the idea of outside money coming in, like I I believe, I mean, this is part of the reason that I'm running um, because I feel like this race is so significant. It is so important, but I also feel like, and maybe this is me on the, being on the inside, I'd be interested in hearing your perspective, Mm -hmm. but like, I mean, does anybody really believe that? I mean, that Texas is going to turn blue. It always feels like it's, Oh, you know, in the next election cycle or a couple down the road, like we have the potential, but I just feel like this has been a narrative for so long that I don't know if people, I don't, I mean, I don't think within our own state, people really buy it. You want, you want, you want to know what's funny is that I met far more people. I live in Northern California. I met far more people that live on my block that were sure Beto was going to win than my friends in Texas that were sure Beto was going to win. The people in Texas, Democratic voters who were very excited, they went out and voted for Beto, they were universally far more pessimistic about his chances. But people up here, they don't know. They don't know that history. They they don't they don't know what it's like every single election day to routinely have bad news dumped in your lap. Uh and and they were they were thrilled. I mean they they understood that it was a long shot, but they were more excited to be on the the plucky underdog side than you know the the evil empire. Specifically, when you were talking about somebody like Ted Cruz, who has a national profile. Yeah, I think that um, you know I went to a lot of uh, Beto events. I door knocked for him. I got uh, involved, very involved um, with his campaign. And I, I feel like he was, a, he, without a doubt, he was a strong progressive candidate. And he had some amazing moments, like when he gave his answer to the Kaepernick question um, about kneeling. Um, I thought it was just so, so smart and inspiring and honest. And it made me feel so um, happy, you know, proud, proud of him. Um, but I also think that there is a lot of his success had, uh, had to honestly do with an incredible thirst. We, I mean, I remember going to the, uh, an event at uh, one of the union halls. It was really early in the campaign. Um, it must have been more than a year out. And the place was filled. It was just packed with people. And you could feel the energy in the room. And it was just like a Sunday afternoon. And we all had our kids and we're all crowded around. And it was like, he, he gave us hope. He gave us hope in a way that a candidate had hadn't in. I don't know, may I don't know if I'd say Ann Richards, but it feels like it's been a really long time, and it and it was because he's he was the first candidate in a really long time who who was unapologetic about being a progressive, and I think that's why also this whole thing with MJ feels like such a step backward because I feel like he showed people what could be done in Texas and that. And the next candidate to run, even though they may not have all of his, um, you know, donor lists and all of the infrastructure that he built up, he changed the perception of what a Texas Democrat could be. No longer do we have to pretend to be a, a, really a Republican, you know, wearing the, wearing the suit of a Democrat. You can be a Democrat. You can stand for these things. You can talk about gun control. You can say this has gone too 
far. My right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness outweighs your right to carry around an AK-47. Like, we are such an outlier in this country on gun control. And if that message gets through in Texas, I mean, all the numbers are there. It supports it. And so I just, I feel like Beto, he, you know, he tapped into something. And it's a real, it's a, I mean, missed opportunity is even, I mean, like, I feel like this, this election, there's so much at stake. And, and if, if we don't continue pushing on these issues, not only we're not going to win because um, Cornyn is going to do a much better job at being a Republican than any Democrat is. Um, but we are, you know, it just feels like this, everything is at stake here. And I know every election they say that, yeah. um, but I wouldn't be running if I didn't actually, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't put, they'd be putting my life on the line, you know, everything if I didn't actually believe it. So from from my perspective, from the outside, uh, you know, well, here, let me actually before before I get to the gun control question, let, let me ask you this one last uh, a, a Beto thing. Why? Why do you think he didn't? Why do you think he didn't translate to a national candidate in the way that maybe some would hope? Oh, man, that is like a question above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> I don't like I honestly I don't know um, what, you know, to make. To make I, and I caught a little bit of um, I was trying to prepare for this and so I was listening to old podcasts of yours and I listened to a bit where um, he had just announced he was he was dropping out yeah um, and it's funny because what you said at that time is sounds um, I don't know if you ever see the or you read the um, Texas Monthly but at the end of the year Texas Monthly magazine has something that they call the bum steer awards okay and um, they give it out like basically. I mean, Texas, I don't know if you are familiar with Molly Ivins. Yes, but, yes. Uh, Molly Ivins. So Molly, you know, Ollie, Molly Ivins, you know, always talk about just how how truly awful Texas politicians are. Um, <laughs> and the Bumsteer Awards kind of, you know, takes the notable quotes and stuff and uh, gives, you know, uh, prizes or honorable mentions or whatever to politicians for the dumb shit they say. And uh, but Beto got half of the Bumsteer Award, uh, Award this year. And what what it said inside was very similar to what you had said about, you know, um, the campaign that he had run at the beginning. I don't know. I mean, I am like, I, it's, <laughs> I don't know. I, it, it's hard doing this. It's incredibly hard doing this yeah. and it just completely mess, messes with your mind. Um, I don't know how you go back to being normal. And, you know, I, I think that he probably, I mean, he, he did do something special, incredibly special. Yeah. And maybe it felt like running for like waiting a little bit and then running for John Cornyn's seat was, I don't know. It's kind of like, I have a saying, like you never go back to your ex, right? Sure. Maybe it just felt like, you know, he was, he was meant to do something else. And there's, there's nothing, I mean, I don't, I think he would have been a, a, a fine president and I'm sure he had people telling him that. So I don't I mean, I don't know his campaign. I, I don't yeah, know. I, 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 I like, don't think I, I don't think you raise 70 million dollars without a long line of people telling you that you'd be a really great president because they want to be, uh, you know, a, a part of that gigantic fundraising fountain. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, absolutely. Then, then one then one more thing tangential to that. You mentioned that gun control is something that you want to make a part of your campaign and you believe that Texas is ready for. Uh, obviously yeah. the, the hell yeah, we're going to take your AR 15s line became kind of emblematic. And the fact that his campaign ended so shortly after that, 
uh, led a lot of people to draw a line between that. Do you think that that kind of fervent gun control is a message that Texas will respond to? Yes, I do. And I don't think so. So I think that that was actually the when when his response to um, the El Paso shooting was the high point in his uh, presidential candidacy. It's when I saw the old Beto again, where he was, you know, he, he was, he, he threw caution to the wind. Um, he, he was, he was the guy that I, you know, I had, I had fallen in love with as a candidate before. And I was so proud that he was saying things. And I don't think you speak flippantly about taking away people's AK-47, but I, I want to be very clear about what we're, what's going on in our country, because unlike, I think, probably any other candidate in this race, I have, I've lived abroad. I've spent four, I actually have my green card for Spain. My, my three children and my husband are dual nationals. Uh, I've lived in Germany. I've lived in Ecuador. And we in the United States are such outliers in this respect. There, the, the number of people that die in our country every year compared to any other industrialized country, we lose more people in a week, in one week in this country than most countries lose an entire year. That is how far of an outlier we are on this issue. And it is because of the proliferation of guns and the lack of regulation of guns. It makes zero sense that we have one guy who has a failed shoe bomb on an airplane, and now we still, how many decades later, are all taking off our shoes. But we have 40,000 people that die at the end of a barrel every single year, and we do nothing. That makes no sense, except if you understand what dynamics are at play. So you have a party that has made a deal with gun makers. In return for their political power, they give the gun makers unfettered access to profit. And no one seems to be bothered by the fact that it's at the expense of 40,000 American lives every single year. I mean, this number is just, if you think about it, it is so astounding. And I go in and I say, look, we're going to do all the stuff that everybody's talking about. Uh, you know, close the gun show loophole, um, do, you know, get research data together, um, background checks, all of that. We're doing all that. But we need to get smart because the solutions that we're still talking about were the same solutions that I fought uh, for when I was working for handgun control in 2000. Uh, they, you know, they're the same solutions that uh, the Brady campaign was working on in the 1990s. We now have a, we have, uh, you know, the proliferation of credit cards. These guns that are, are, that are used in mass shootings are being bought, financed really by credit card companies because most people don't have, or I guess want to be, uh, you know, mass shooters don't have the money pulled together to buy like these huge arsenals of guns. And so why are we financing this? We can track suspicious um, purchases in our credit card. Every time, you know, I, I cross the, the state line, my card stops working. There, there has to be a way that we can track suspicious gun purchases and stop financing these guns. Further, how is it that I have to buy liability insurance for my car, but yet the cost of these, of uh, the carnage, inflicted on our lives is externalized to, to the public. How is that possible? If you are going to own a gun, you need to have liability insurance. This is what insurance companies are all about, assessing risk. Let an insurance company go in there and figure out how likely you are to go, to go and shoot up a church or a Walmart or a street or whatever else. But like, we need to start offering 
creative solutions, real solutions. This has got to stop. This has got to stop. And I'll tell you what, that when I go and I speak to people, that the my my position on guns, that gets the biggest applause every single time. You know, it is it is a very fascinating issue with Texas because uh, obviously in our in our world of dual political realities where, you know, you say the same thing and it's heard different ways by different ears uh, on on the the, the conservative side uh, that any kind of restriction is a a slip and slide to, you know, full uh, restriction of of everything in life right and so the idea of removing a gun no matter how powerful is something that could be uh you know the 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 precursor to to more is there any part of that that uh, you need to weave into your message or you do you are, are are you trying to appeal to folks who think like that or or is this about turning out a base that really hasn't been activated well i think it's you know it's very interesting because um i it's funny because I want to have the conversations that I don't think you're going to hear other Democratic Party candidates having. Um, I want to go in and I want to talk to people and I'm not going to water down my position or my message because of it. Um, I'm very thoughtful about where I come from. And I um, but I believe that we I understand the slippery slope argument. In fact, the older I get, the more I understand it and the more I think it has legitimacy. But we are at such a point now where this isn't there. There there, there isn't room anymore to have this conversation. We are at a point where I had to pull my son out of the only Arabic language public school in the United States here in Houston, Texas, because there was only one secure door in between the street and his classroom. And his classroom was the first door on the right. And if somebody was going to walk into that school and want to shoot them up because of what they perceived as a, a, a Muslim school, my kid would have, would have I, I could just see the flow. And I, I couldn't risk it. I no longer think that we are at a point, at least I am as a parent, where I can say, oh, I would have never thought this could happen in my neighborhood or my school or my whatever. I'm tired of looking at going to movie theaters and figuring out where the escape door is. I'm tired in Texas of having to watch somebody walk in strapped with ammo and not know if I can call the police, if I can tell other people, if I should tell other people that that guy just went into the grocery store. This isn't this, 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 thing that we're doing around guns is comes at a very real cost and we are raising our children to go and um to to duck from live shooters i mean when when we need to be focusing on the problem at hand and it's i mean this is just one of the clearest issues in my mind where people are dying because of what's going on in washington and i don't see any explanation for it other than the fact that money is being pri- money and power is being prioritized over human lives, and I mean it happens in all sorts of different ways in our immigration policy and our and our um, and our justice system and our healthcare system. But nowhere is it more clear. Are those dots more more clearly drawn than 
in this very situation. And the numbers support it. You don't get 90% of people choosing, you know, turkey over ham for Christ's sake for Thanksgiving, but yet 90% of people want to um, close the gun show loopholes and do background checks. I mean, Americans are there. The problem is that the elected officials aren't, and they're not being, they're not doing what they're, what they are hired to do, which is to represent the people, not the gun makers. Well, Annie, I'll tell you what, I'm sure that there are plenty of people who are listening who are very excited by uh, the, the, the passion that you bring into this race. If uh, listeners in Texas would like to support you, where can they go? Well, listeners anywhere can support me. Of course. Sure. Yes. <laughs> voters, you, you but, voters, voters, voters in Texas, uh, supporters nationwide. Well, um, so we have a lot of very exciting things going on right now, including um, a 420-mile walk I'm going to be making across the state of Texas in protest to John Cornyn and his do-harm politics. Um, And so there's going to be more information coming out on that. If you want to be in the loop, uh, if you want to learn more about where I stand on the issues, if you want to see fun videos of my kids, (laughs) you can see all of that at um, runannierun.com. And if you can't remember that, you can also go to um, whycornynsucks.com, johncornynsucks.com, whyjohncornynsucks.com, basically any version of johncornynsucking.com <laughs> that, you, that, you, that you can. Uh, that is that is amazing. And of course, uh, you are also on Twitter at runannierun2, right? At- that's correct. There's a apparently there's a marathon runner named Annie, and she she beat me to the punch by like a very long time. So she's run <laughs> Annie run, and I've tried to get it, reach out to her because I want her to go on this walk with me. I'm like, how fun would that be? But I can't I can't get through to her. So for now, I'm just run Annie run two on Twitter and Instagram. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Annie. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. And that'll wrap us up for today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Our Titanic $10 tier. Jim, DL, Lindsay, Steven, Japan, Dwoid, Squid's Mixtape, Jamie, Ryan, Adam, Jonathan, D. Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. You are all sterling examples of humanity and if you want to join their ranks, there's only one place to go. Take politics seriously. Dot. A reminder, you can catch my historical political series, Raise the Dead. It's all out now. Season one is done. Six episodes focusing on the 1960 election and how it relates to 2016. I didn't realize that there were three sixes involved in that. I think I'll leave that there. But if you want to get an email in, to uh, be part of our mailbag episode. That'll be next week. That'll be kind of the official end of season one. Then send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can also send me an email about this, this show right here. It's the same email. Follow me at Justin R. Young on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. Until next time, this is your old boy, Justin Robert Young, saying politics has three names. And I saw a show talking about politics. I saw another show talking about politics. And I saw some lady on Instagram talking about politics. But this is the only show that talks about all three.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>